So we're on lesson six today, male and female roles in the church. Uh, the last few weeks we've been looking at male and female roles in the family, particularly in marriage. And before that, we just laid a foundation concerning the the um, the way God designed us to be equal before Him to equally share in his um, image. We're all image bearers of God in the same way, and, and even together we, we exhibit his image even more comprehensively in a complementary way than either man or woman could do individually. Uh, and yet he has designed us to have different roles. As we've been looking at, there are different roles in the family, uh, and these roles um, are not because of sin. There was different roles even before sin, the way God designed things, but sin made it harder, harder to implement, harder to be uh, faithful in. But now we're going to look at male and female roles in the church. And again, just like the family is God's design and we need to follow his design, the church is also God's design, and we need to follow his design there as well. So I want to begin with some review of the equality of men and women, both in their value before God and their dignity before him. So as I mentioned, we both share equally in being created in God's image. God said he made them male and female in his image. Um, and in the context here of the church, particularly, it's good to know that the Holy Spirit is poured out equally on men and women, believers. Uh, he empowers us to live the Christian life, to, to minister for Christ, and uh, he is um, indwelling both men and women, there's no distinction. Uh, he is um, bidding all of us to yield to him, to be, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, men and women, the same. Uh, the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts to every believer, male and female, to serve in the church, to serve God, and to represent him well. Uh, both are baptized as an outward sign of their new life in Christ, which is quite in contrast with how it was under the law, right? Where there wasn't baptism, but there was circumcision, and that was only for the males. Whereas in Christ, um, we're all baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ equally, and then we're outwardly commanded to be baptized by water as a symbol of that, relationship with Christ. And again, it's both male, female, no difference. Right? And Galatians 3.28 particularly, and we're going to talk a bit about that, I think, more next week. But it says there is, in Christ, there's neither male nor female. I mean, it's just no distinction in terms of our standing in Christ, the way we come to Christ. 
uh, our service for Christ. We're all part of the body of Christ. And in that verse, it says it's neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, um, Jew or Greek. Everybody comes to Christ the same way. And everybody in Christ is equally a brother and sister in Christ. So just like in marriage where, as we, we saw, that there, the difference in roles is in the context of that equality of essence, equality of, of our you know, relationship with God and so on, it's the same thing here in our roles in the church. They're all grounded in this basic equality before God. And that's important to understand. Um, but again, that doesn't mean that we're interchangeable. Much is the same about us, but we're not interchangeable by God's design. And so, First Timothy has a couple of key passages here we're going to look at today that help us to understand some of these differences in the roles. And the first one here is in chapter 2. I'm on the middle of page 29. We're beginning in verse 11. It says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was created first, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And of course, led her husband to as well. But women... um, The NASB there actually doesn't have, we're going to come back to this, the the New American Standard that I've quoted here. That word women um, is in italics because there's no word women in in the Greek. It's supplied to kind of make the sentence flow. Um, But there is a better translation, actually. We'll get to that. Anyway, uh, and the better translation is she. It's singular. It's not plural. The, the verb here, will be, is singular. It can't be women. That's why the word women isn't there. But she will be preserved through the bearing of children if they, plural, continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now, that gets complicated. We're going we're gonna to dig into that in a minute. But let's see, first of all, the context. What's, uh, what's the context in which we read this? Well, right before that, it's talking about corporate worship in the church. And so that's the context. It's, it's, it's not just any old situation. It's, it's in the assembled church, corporate worship and, and that kind of thing. The context after this passage is the next chapter, and actually we're going to talk about that next, and that talks about qualifications for church leadership. And so, as is typical in 1 Timothy, um, as with 2 Timothy and Titus, they're focused on the, the inner workings of the church. They're instructions to pastors 
to, in fact, they're called pastoral <coughs> epistles, to teach them how to um, um, function in the church. And so that's the context here for our passage in verses uh, 11 through 15. So, um, what are the rules, he says, in terms of the, the roles? Well, he says, first, women must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness in that context. And women must not teach or exercise authority over a man in the church context. Um, but then it doesn't just say that. It gives some reasons why. And so the first reason given in the passage is the order of creation. He says, um, it reminds us, going back to Genesis, and we, we looked at this, I guess, in our first week, that um, the man was created first and the woman was created out of the man, Adam, right? And so the apostle here is taking us back there and saying oh, that's one of the reasons why there's a difference in roles. It's, it's a continuation of God's uh, order of creation that there would be a distinction even in the operation function of the church. And then his second reason here in verse 14, he says that uh, Eve was deceived. What was Adam? Why did Adam see uh, sin? It wasn't because he was deceived, but because of what? He chose. He chose. Uh, even knowing that it was wrong. Uh, yeah, he followed the lead of his wife, and who knows what was going on in his head, but it wasn't deception that was causing him to... To um, sin, and um, we spoke a few weeks ago about some of the tendencies in masculinity and femininity that God God designed that we're, we're not the same. We're not wired the same. Uh, there are ranges of of tendencies and traits uh, both for both men and women, but in general. Um, the women tend to be more relational and the men tend to be more detached. Um, just the facts, man, kind of a thing. You know? um, and again, there's, there's a range there for, for, for everybody. But that seems to be consistent with God, God's design for these different roles, both in the family and in the church. Um, and so by God's design, men are not fully um, exempt, let's say, from deception and being deceived, but they're a little bit better suited to the task of standing up to error in the church and maintaining disciplined obedience to God's word. Uh, now, you wouldn't necessarily see it in the behavior of Adam, right? But the way God has 
made men and women different. It, it, um, uh, it's, it's more consistent with men taking on that role. And that's essentially the role that Adam had. He had the role of, of as we saw, leading his wife. She was his helper, um, uh, protecting her, providing for him, her and the family. Um, and that similar kind of role carries over into the church where there would be leadership and, and uh, protection of the flock um, uh, by men. And so that's, that's part of the, the, uh, the rationale in, in God's design. But then um, it gives these other verses that we we uh, mentioned earlier. And uh, I mentioned that word um, women isn't there in the Greek. What is there is the singular feminine conjugation of the verb. And so it's, it's she. It's talking about she. But who is the she? There isn't an antecedent in that sentence. Where do you have to find who the she is referring to? The previous sentence. And who is the she? Eve. Right? Nevertheless, and this, the New King James Version seems to have a, 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 a more accurate rendering of this. Nevertheless, by the way, bold and the underline are mine. Don't, don't, that, that's not inspired. <laughs> Nevertheless, she will be saved. Now that word saved is the same word we use elsewhere in scripture. It's, it's saved, sozo. It's the verb saved. It can have other shades of meaning, but it is the common word for saved. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Um, so, notice that we're going from the singular to the plural. She and they. Who's the they? In the context here, it's not speaking of plural women. Who are the other people mentioned in the, in the verse? The children. Children. The children, plural, they. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. So you begin to get a picture of what this is saying, that um, Eve will be saved. Now, it's not saved in the salvation kind of sense that we normally use the word. Um, a better rendering here is probably vindicated. Um, she, Eve, will be vindicated if her descendants, her she's, she's the, the mother of all the living, that's what Adam called her, right? If um, down through the generations, her children, descendants, continue in faith, love, holiness, with self-control. So um, that will be evidence of, in part, 
the wife's uh, nurture, uh, discipling, guidance, example for the children. Right? Um, and even though it's speaking in the singular here of Eve, that just sort of carries on, really. It applies to really all mothers if in their raising of children, they raise them up to be God-fearing men and women. So it, it kind of vindicates her. Yes, she was deceived. She was led into sin. She even led Adam into sin. Um, and God would have been just to wipe them both out immediately. Right? Uh, but instead, he sacrificed a substitute, an animal, used the skins to cover them, and um, displaying his grace, even while uh, foretelling in the sentencing of Adam and Eve that there would be a descendant of hers who would crush the serpent. And that, of course, is referring to Christ, who crushed Satan by his final payment for sin. Anyway, so um, sort of in the context we've got here, so in the church, he's saying that women um, uh, should not exercise authority over men, in the church, women should not be teaching men. Um, but their responsibility for spiritual nurture is in the home. Right? The, the, the shepherding of the flock is the responsibility of the men of the church. Um, the shepherding of the family is jointly shared by the husband and the wife, the mom and the dad, but the mom has a special, even perhaps in many ways, deeper relationship with those children, uh, particularly when they're younger, but even forever. You know, who they run to? They run to mom. <laughs> um, and mothers, it's saying here, mothers have the, the unique role of of shepherding those little ones in the home to be God-fearers, people who would go out and continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. Uh, the mothers are going to have a huge impact on that development of the children. Not exclusively, clearly the husband shares in that, but a very unique, special, and deep role with their children. And so that's an investment that they're making for the future while the, the husbands share in that and have sort of oversight of that as well, but their domain more so is in the shepherding of the church. Covered all those points. Before we go to the next passage though, are there any questions or thoughts on that? And first Peter 5 says definitely that the shepherds in the church are not to lord it over. 
right? But rather to be um, uh, servant leaders, for sure. And the same would be true in the home. I mean, every exercise of authority, all authority comes from where? From God. And it all comes with the responsibility to exercise it um, as a servant. Like Jesus said, um, the greatest among you will be what? Your servant, the least of all. Uh, that's for sure. Okay, any other thoughts there? Yeah, well, First um, Timothy 2 is pretty clear, right? Um, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And again, the context is in the church. And so it needs to have uh, male leadership uh, and exclusively male authority exercised within the church and uh, the teaching of men. Now, it doesn't say that the women have no teaching role, and we'll get to that in a minute, but... Um, and maybe that's a good segue to our next passage, actually, in 1 Timothy 3. The very next verses, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, talks about the leadership, then, in the local church. Um, and so I'll, maybe I'll just go ahead and read the whole thing. It is a trustworthy statement. And again, this immediately follows what we just looked at in 1 Timothy. So we're going now to 1 Timothy 3. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he be able to take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be the husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so there's a lot going on there. I'm hoping we can cover all of these. First of all, we'll see that uh, this word overseer is the Greek word episkope. 
Now, what does that bring to mind? Yeah, Episcopal kind of church, right? It means overseer. Uh, It means to provide oversight and so on. And so Episcopalians took that name because of their view of church governance and organization and whatnot. Anyway, um, that word, overseer, episcope, in Scripture is used interchangeably with other words for that very same office in the church. Uh, Overseer, but also elder. Now, the word elder in the Greek is the word um, presbuteros. Now, what does that bring to mind? Presbyterian. Yeah, so they took their name uh, from that concept of, again, church leadership. Another word that's used in scripture often just interchangeably with these other two words is the word shepherd, koime, shepherd. Uh, usually in the New Testament, it's, it's used as a verb to shepherd the flock, like in um, Acts 20 and First uh, uh, Peter 5. Um, so the point is that, that, that this role in the church, oh, and by the way, the, the term we often use is what? Pastor, right? That word pastor is basically the word shepherd. You know, shepherds are in a pastoral role, right? They're out in the pasture with their flocks, right? Um, but those words, um, elder, overseer, shepherd, pastor, they're all just the same thing just different perspectives on the same role in the church. So anyway, those overseers, it says, must be men. It says very explicitly, if a man aspires to the office of overseer, um, it also says he must be the husband of one wife. And uh, the word for overseer here is the masculine um, form of that noun. Um, and notice that that's consistent with the verses that preceded it at the end of chapter 2, where at the end of chapter 2 it said that um, women must not teach men or exercise authority over men in the church. And so then it goes right from that to say, well, here are the ones who should, men who meet certain qualifications. Getting back to, to Sarah's point, both chapter 2 and chapter 3 make it very clear that those in that role of a pastor in a church, a shepherd, an elder, an overseer, um, need to be men according to God's design. Uh, but this passage speaks not just of overseers, but also what other role? Deacons. What is a deacon? Yeah, well, the, the word deacon just means servant. That's what it means. It means to be a servant. Now, there is a sense in which all of us are to be servants. 
right? Servants of Christ and serving one another and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but the deacon is one who is particularly set aside and recognized for his role in serving within the church. Now, Scripture doesn't uh, give much of any description as to what what his responsibilities or what his role will be in serving within the church. But given the fact that his title is that of servant, kind of officially as a servant, it could be pretty much anything serving in a, in a recognized um, sort of leading by example and uh, organizing the ministries of the church. Uh, and it's also very clear that these deacons would be serving in that way under the oversight of the overseers, the elders, the pastors. Um, and so, you know, you, you look around and different churches employ their deacons in slightly different ways, but usually with that kind of relationship with uh, the elders, pastors, they're helping the ministry to flourish by their service in various areas, and that's all a good thing. Uh, We see an example in the early church in Acts of uh, very practical needs arising among the people, you know, the there was a distribution of food because there were a lot of out-of-town people. And um, the apostles decided to um, have some helpers officially recognized to manage that situation, make sure everything was being conducted orderly. Uh, They weren't actually called deacons, but you can see the kind of needs that can arise, kind of practical needs, um, and it would make sense for deacons to do that. Why? Well, very similar to the reason why they helped in the early church in the book of Acts, to free up the leaders to prayer and teaching and their role to oversight. So there's a division of responsibilities and oversight and... and, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Implementing, you know, the practical, the practical aspects of ministry and meeting people's needs. So, Maybe yeah. you already answered this. So, is a deacon and an elder the same? No, no. So it's there's a very distinct distinction here, right? Okay. So that um, it is interesting that in the qualifications that are given, there's a lot of overlap, mm-hmm. and that's because the overlap is, is about character, mm-hmm. right? Being mature, being Christ-like, mm-hmm. being a, a good example, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, but they are different roles, different positions within the church. And the main difference, and even as you look at the, the list here, can you see anything in the list of responsibilities of an elder that's not listed for deacons? Teaching, yeah. So, um, verse two: temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Um, and that doesn't come up in the office of 
deacon. Now it doesn't, it's not a bad thing necessarily if, if deacons teach, but it's not a requirement. But for an elder, for an overseer, it is a requirement to be able to teach. It doesn't mean that they have the gift of teaching necessarily, but they're able to teach, it says. Um, so there are different roles. The, the deacons are serving under the authority and direction and oversight of the elders, the pastors. Um, and you can think of it in terms of them doing a lot of the day-to-day administration of, you know, working out of the ministries and making sure things are humming on all cylinders or whatever the analogy is. So in a hierarchy, it'd be pastors, elders, and then deacons. Well, there's no distinction between pastors and elders. Those words are used interchangeably. So whether it's pastor, elder, overseer, shepherd, that's the same position. Just different words that are used interchangeably, sometimes in the same passage in Scripture. Um, so it's pastor, elders, shepherds, overseers, that's one. Deacons are serving under them okay. in a variety of ways, depending on the needs of the church and the gifting of the deacons and, and that kind of thing, and the needs. Um, so it would be basically those, those two positions. A little bit, a little bit, yeah, there, there's... Um, the principle there is that certainly one person just can't do everything. Right. And there needs to be a division of labor so that things could be orderly and conducted well and, and so on. And so that's part of the rationale, I'm sure, for God's design here. Um, and the fact that the, the duties of a deacon, other than just general serving, aren't laid out as to what their duties should be means that they can be flexible as the need arises. Let's, let's meet this need and, and serve in that way. I don't know where that came from, but in, if you look in Scripture, every time it refers to um, the elders in a church, it's always plural. There are elders in each church. And the command to appoint elders is to appoint elders plural in each church singular. So... Why would that be God's design? Mutual accountability, for sure. Right? Any other thoughts? Encouragement. Encouragement, kind of sharing the load. They're probably gifted differently, and that's a good thing. You don't want them to be clones of each other. Right? Um, There are lots of advantages. But... um, um, that's what we see in Scripture. Why it happens in other ways in various churches, that's a bit, I don't know. Uh, over time, you know, people get into tradition and this kind of thing, but uh, God has very clearly laid out um, the organization. It's probably pretty common. Yeah. It's simpler for that one man to say, well, you know, I'm in charge, and I get to make the rules, and I don't have to meet with these other guys. Yeah, and even if that's well-intended and good intentions, it's so easy for that to degenerate, mm-hmm. right? And there isn't the checks and balances there, and you don't see it in Scripture. Right. 
That's the point. So, anyway, in our context here, um, I'm down now at the bottom of page 31. Uh, it, It says definitely about deacons that they must also be men, men of dignity, uh, men who were first tested, uh, husbands of one wife, and, and the whole works. Um, however, <clears throat> verse um, 11 is very interesting. It says, Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. And then it goes on to talking about deacons again. So right in the middle of this this section on deacons, there's a sentence, verse 11, that talks about women. And so many have taken that to mean, well, the context here is deacons. It must be referring to female deacons. Yes. 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 It's just uh, connecting the dots to make that conclusion. But is that conclusion warranted, given the text? Well, let's think about that. Turn over to page 32. So, again, that, that verse is right in the middle of the qualifications for deacons. But flip back to 31 if you want to look at the actual text. And observe that verse 8 begins by saying deacons likewise men of dignity. Now the must be is implied by the the um, the, the the context, but the must be is actually not in the Greek. Um, um, but it begins deacons likewise men of dignity. Verse 11 begins, women likewise dignified. And if you flip over to page 32 and you compare verse 8 with verse 11, in the Greek they begin in exactly the same way. Verse 8, speaking of deacons, likewise dignified. And verse 11, speaking of the the women, Likewise, dignified. Those are the first three words in the Greek text of those verses. They begin in exactly the same way. Now, what what does the word likewise, what, what's it used for? Connection. The same. The same. So there's similarities, right? Does it mean equality? The, the same or just similarity? So there is some similarities between A and B, but if, the, if A and B were identical, would we say likewise? No, what we're saying is that there's a similar thing going on here applied to a different group, right? So when it says in verse 8, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, are the deacons the same as the elders spoken of earlier? No, it's a different position. But likewise means what? There's a lot of similarity between elders and deacons. 
right? And in fact, as you look at the list, there's a lot of the same character qualities and, and basic qualifications. Uh, the main distant difference we noted was elders have the requirement to be able to teach. But the likewise is there because there's a lot of similarity applied to a different group. Right? So then we get to verse 11. It says, women must likewise be dignified. Again, using that same word, dignified. There's a lot of similarity here, but it's a different group he's talking about. Now, is it merely the fact that some are men and some are women? Well, let's see. So I'm in the middle of page 32. The word likewise suggests some similarities in the substance of the message, in this case, qualifications, but makes a distinction as to groups, women as distinct distinct from deacons. So if deacons could be either men or women, there wouldn't be a need for that distinction. They'd be interchangeable. Right? Um, so that suggests that there's some difference. What is something else that you notice in the text? Are the qualifications the same between the deacons and these women? Similar. That's why it uses the word likewise. But what? They're not the same. There are a lot of things that are required for a deacon that aren't even mentioned about these women. Right? So it's a bit of a leap of faith then to assume that these are just deacons who are women. Because the text is actually giving them different qualifications. A shorter list. There's a lot of similarity in the character but a shorter list, right? And so it doesn't seem warranted to just assume that he's speaking of females who have the same thing. He's making a distinction. What is the distinction about? Is it only that they're women? I don't think so. They're not interchangeable. Um, So... um, All of them have to do with godly character, whereas the qualifications for deacon go beyond character to include fitness for general church management, like not fond of sordid gain, good managers of their children and households, and so on. So that doesn't answer the question, who are these women? Right? Well... um, I can tell you what I think. I'm not sure how many people uh, agree with me. Uh, But I can tell you what I think. Even though a lot of people, a lot of God-honoring, Bible-believing Christians and and saintly people take this to mean women deacons, I just don't see the text. Um, I think it's a leap of faith from this text. I don't think it's really teaching that. But what could it be teaching? Well, to answer that question, let's go to a passage that, if you have your Bible, go to Titus chapter 1. Titus, as I mentioned, is the, um, the other um, pastoral epistle. And it's particularly relevant for our conversation because 
in chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, it talks about the qualifications for elders. Now, in Titus, they're called elders. In 1 Timothy, as we just saw, they're called overseers, but it's the same role. It's the same role and the same basic qualifications. But among the qualifications for elder that's given in in Titus 1... He says, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders, plural, in every city, singular, as I directed you. Namely, if any man is beyond reproach, the husband of one wife, having faithful children who are not accused of dissipation or rebellious. and it goes on with some of the same qualifications we read in First Timothy. But what I want to direct your attention to is it says, um, having faithful children, or your translation may say uh, believing children. Um, the, the Greek word there is uh, pisto, uh, meaning it's often used to mean uh, believing. Uh, even believe saving uh, saving faith really, um, but having in, in the version I was reading to you from this is the Legacy Standard Bible, faithful children. That's another accurate rendering of that term. Um, who are not accused of dissipation or rebellion and so on. So why would that be a, requ- a requirement? I'm sorry, Ellen, you had a question? No, I was just trying to figure out what verse you were reading from. That's Titus 1, uh-huh. beginning of verse 5, and I'm focusing mostly on verse 6. Okay, thank you. So the, these are qualifications for an elder, pastor, overseer in the church, and it's saying not only should he be mature, and yet be, again, um, husband of one wife, but having faithful children. It's, ta- it's talking about his family. The other passage of 1 Timothy 3 talked about the family as well and his managing the household well. Here, it's, it's saying having faithful children who are not accused of dissipation or rebellious. Now, if an elder were to have children who were... Um, rebellious and not uh, respectful of the faith and so on, uh, what might happen? Why? Why would, why would it be appropriate to remove an elder if his children were working at cross-purposes, basically, to his ministry? Right, right. So it's, it's not just about um, the... the the testimony of his being able to manage his household well, but it's also about what the impact on the church might be if he doesn't, right? And so the, the rebellion, the dissipation on the part of his children would be undermining even his credibility as a shepherd in the church, right? And so... Um, that that word, as I read it, 
from the Legacy Standard Bible is faithful, having faithful children, which I think is the meaning here, as opposed to believing. Some translations say believing, children who believe. Um, That would be helpful, but are we holding the, the, the man responsible for whether or not his children believe? Only God can do that. What's his responsibility? To raise them up well in, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And it, it is apparently a significant part of his responsibility to make sure that they're not accused of dissipation and, and rebellious and uh, undermining the ministry. But this would be for minors, correct? These yes. Would be, okay, not adults. Yes. I mean, once you're out, okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as, as, yeah, it would, it would be... Like an 11-year-old or whatever, not a 21-year-old. Children at home. Okay, right. Children at, at home. home. Gotcha. Right. It's, okay. it's always here talking about um, managing his household well. Okay. Yeah. Um, but the intent here appears to be not that his children would also be saved, although that's, that would be wonderful, right. and it's often probably going to be the case if they get the right kind of nurture, but what's critical here is that they not undermine the ministry. Right? Yeah. Yes? So, in response to the adult children, um, if, if, you don't, if you don't manage your children well when they're in your household, yes. they will also be an embarrassment could be an embarrassment to you in their adult years. For sure. So although it's not talking about managing them as adults, but if you've raised them well, right. they're not going to just destroy your ministry later on. Right. You know, in, right. Unless you, you didn't raise them well. Right. And it, it just shows For sure. So that shepherding um, will carry on in their character and, and, right. and so on. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're saved, right. but they're not undermining the ministry. Uh, whether they're in the house or older. But, yeah, the focus here is on the home. Yes, that's the first priority for um, in both both First Timothy 3 and here in Titus 1, the emphasis is that he's setting the right example in the home because, if, in fact, First Timothy 3 says, well, if he can't manage his own home, why would you think he'd be able to have a similar role of shepherding in a broader context. That's a good segue here. That's where I'm going back. Back to 1 Timothy 3.11. That word in the Greek as well as in the Hebrew, although this is Greek, um, the word for women and the word for wives is the same word. How do you know which it's talking about? Context. Context. All right? And so... Um, I I think I alluded to that in one of my notes here. Yes, so given what we saw in Titus 1 about children, it wasn't saying anything really other than the husband of one wife. It wasn't saying anything about the wife. Whereas here, it seems like a better understanding in verse 11 is that that word ought to be translated wives, not women. Mm -hmm. Now, would that make sense? Mm -hmm. Wives must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Why would that be an important qualification for a deacon? It's the same as the children. Yeah. (laughs) 
And that word, faithful in all things, it's the exact same terminology in the Greek that you see in Titus 1 about the children. Faithful. Um, so that they don't undermine the ministry. Right? You could see how easy it would be, whether it's children or a wife, to under, undermine the ministry of the church if those leaders, um, children, or in this case perhaps the wife, is um, working at cross-purposes? Well, that's a good question. So you've got these different translations to um, to grapple with when you get to a text. It's, it's usually good for us to look at several translations, seeing how they handle it. Is there a unifying principle? Unfortunately not. Now, it should be. Uh, the better translations are pretty unified on wanting to be literal with the original languages. Uh, but as with any translation, it's not a simple mechanical word-for-word translation. Uh, I don't know if you know multiple languages. It's, there, there are different structures, there are different idioms, and if you translate it word for word literally without at all understanding the meaning, it's probably not going to translate very well into some languages. Now, in many cases, that's not an issue. It's pretty straightforward. But there are times when uh, the translator needs to be faithful to the actual words of the original, in this case in the Greek, but also faithful to the the immediate context, what must it mean in the, in the immediate context, but also the general overall context of all of Scripture, it needs to be faithful to that, any translation that we, we come up with. And some translations are better at that balancing and, and meeting all those objectives than others. Um, and man, being fallible, is probably never going to get it perfect. But I'm convinced that the same God who revealed the revelation in Scripture, who inspired the human authors to write what God wanted, not dictated, but God inspired not just the thought, but the words, um, is the same God who made it possible long before photocopies and printing presses for that to be transmitted from generation to generation faithfully. And man, the Dead Sea Scrolls just show how faithful the, the scribes were to transcribe the, uh, the Old Testament for... Thousands of years, the exact same text. It's amazing. Anyway, the same God who, who superintended that um, transmission of the text is the same God who superintends the translation of that into languages. Why? Because he wants every person to be able to interact with his word in their own language. Right? Um, 
Does that mean that every translator is going to get it perfect? No, because even our language is changing all the time. Um, But it does mean that those who embark on it with prayerful um, dependence on, on the Lord and staying faithful to the text and the context um, usually do a very excellent job. And we have the benefit of looking at several translations and probably getting an even better understanding by, um, you know, if, if you're not fluent in biblical Greek or Hebrew, you depend on those who are, right? And as we read the different translations, we, um, we can get a better sense than if we're left with only one. Yeah. So, uh, for what it's worth, I've just recently come across the Legacy Standard Bible. It's basically the New American Standard, but improved. <laughs> and these little words here is, is one of the ways that it's more improved, I think. Um, but anyway, so my answer to this question is that it's talking about the wives, not just of the deacons, but in the context here, if that's really the intent, would that be a, a, a need only for the deacons' wives, but also for the elders' wives, right? So it doesn't say in verse 11, their wives must likewise, it says wives, so I think it, it belongs to both the wives of the deacons and of the overseers, the elders. Yeah, even even with the elders, the same thing. Uh, it, it even says one of the requirements, a uh, higher priority is for them to be a good shepherd in the home. Right? And it starts there. Long before they're qualified to be a shepherd of the church, they need to be faithful and effective in that role of discipling their own family. Um, so, yeah, it, it goes for everybody. And the same thing with the women. These ought to be qualities that would be true of all women. So if they end up being married to a deacon or an elder, then there's no problem. On page 33, I've listed some things you can look through. Some biblical examples of women in ministry. You know, this. what we focused on today was more or restrictions, boundaries around the role of women, but what can they do within those boundaries? And there are a lot of things that even we see in Scripture where women are participating with their husband or in other aspects of the ministry. And there's some suggestions here of how that might play out today in today's context. So I think you'll find that helpful. But let's go ahead and pray.